Good morning. I'm uh, Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus of Christ Community, and I uh, hope you feel a warm welcome on a kind of cold, gloomy day. Uh, we are delighted that you are here, and we're in a series. Pastor Randy mentioned that, so we want you to know if you're newer. Uh, this Advent series, uh, looking at some of the Psalms in the Old Testament. We've entitled the series Songs That Sustain Us because the Old Testament Psalms are really songs, lyrics, poetic lyric, lyrics that were sung for centuries in God's covenant people in the Old Testament. On the first week, we looked at a psalm of hope. Uh, last week, we looked at a psalm of peace. And this morning, we're going to examine a song of love. So again, before we open God's word, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this day. It's a day you've made and we rejoice in it. And yet, for many of us, we face difficult times. Many of us are struggling with the darkness of discouragement, the challenges of life. And so, Lord, we come with open arms and open hearts and open minds. We ask that you would speak to us. Ask that you would communicate in the deepest crevasses of the human heart, wherever we are, that you would shine your light of grace and truth for your glory and praise. Amen. Well, with her long life commitment to the poor, Mother Teresa of Calcutta truly inspired the world. After death in 1977, she surprised the world. She surprised it in her posthumously published book entitled, Come Be My Light, which reveals not only the buoyancy of her Christian faith, no, it reveals rather the agonizing crises of her faith. Those extended periods of spiritual darkness that she experienced. Mother Teresa describes it this way. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. At first glance, this may seem surprising, but actually Mother Teresa's experience is not as much as the exception as it is the norm of followers of Jesus' journey. The 16th century Spanish Christian labeled this reality better than anyone else in human history. He was given the title St. John of the Cross, and he described this experience that many followers of Jesus face as the dark night of the soul. The dark night is a time when a person feels hauntingly alone, like a black hole in the universe, abandoned by God, bombarded by doubt, overwhelmed with longing, that longing for an intimate love that seems fickle and mockingly absent. Having been a follower of Jesus since I was a young boy, and now for many years serving as a pastor, I too have encountered agonizing crises of my own faith. I have been in the fearful clutches of faith's dark night. And as Mother Teresa transparently described in her own journey, I too have felt the despairing black hole of hopelessness, of God not wanting me, of being abandoned and unloved and unlovable. 
of God not really being God, of God not existing. And I have come to realize the dark night of the soul is something most followers of Jesus encounter sometime, if not several times, in their spiritual journey. The dark night is a time of massive disorientation, structural disorientation in the soul. A time of dissonance, a time of depression often, and a time of nagging doubt. Inevitably, the dark night is a time of extended, often overwhelming, exhausting, agonizing waiting and waiting and waiting. If you are like me, waiting is one of the hardest things in life. And in a nanosecond culture of instant gratification, when we can go Amazon.com and have it at our doorstep the next morning, waiting is increasingly difficult. But could it be that the waiting is one of the most important things in life? See, whether it's a relationship with others or God, Relationships don't flourish on nanosecond time schedules. Love and relationships take time. Lots of time. Love and waiting go hand in hand. 20th century philosopher, the French woman and political activist, Simone Weil, writes with extraordinary brilliance in many areas, including the spiritual life. She describes it this way. She says, the very foundation of spiritual life is waiting. Waiting. But how do we wait well? How do we wait well? Especially in those moments, in those seasons of the dark night of the soul. Welcome to Psalm 25. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn there with me as we explore this brilliant, poetic, lyrical text. And as we enter into this psalm, I'd like us to step back and look at the literary terrain and make some broad observations. First, you'll notice in the subscript of your text that this psalm was written by David, King David. It's a long tradition. And the fact that Psalm 25 is right on the footsteps of Psalm 23 is not incidental in the arrangement of the Psalter. In Psalm 23, most of us know what that psalm is about, right? Whether we're newer to the Christian faith, whether we're discovering it, whether we're doubter, wherever we are in our faith, whether we've read the Old Testament or not, we've heard Psalm 23, usually at funerals. In Psalm 23, David is buoyant in his faith. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I have no wants at all. David is experiencing God in a powerful way, in an intimate way, as his loving shepherd who is attending to his every need, who is protecting him, and who is watching over him with love. But in Psalm 25, David is in a very, very different place. In Psalm 25, David is waiting and waiting and waiting for God. A host of troubles are confronting him, and it seems his good shepherd has left him, has vanished, and has gone completely silent. 
Psalm 23 ends with this hopeful declaration, God is with me. The Hebrew text actually says, God is pursuing me. Psalm 25 begins with an agonizing, God is nowhere to be found. And Psalm 25 ends with David still waiting, waiting for God. I want you to notice the literary genre, the scaffolding of the lyrics, is described as an individual lament. In other words, each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which enhanced memorability, memorability, but also tells us it was used in a corporate worship setting. Psalm 25, as you will notice as we go through it, has two interconnecting thematic threads that bring the central meaning. This threefold repetition is around two words, wait and steadfast love. Wait appears and love appears in an antiphonal lyrical dance. Wait, verse 3, 5, and 21. Steadfast love, 6, 7, and 10. And the lyrical arrangement of this song conveys this central idea. That waiting and loving are mutual companions on the journey. And that in love's dark night, true love waits. So how did David wait amidst the agonizing darkness of his dark night of the soul? How did he wait? You will notice that David offers up a prayer to God. And in it, there are three transparent cries of his waiting heart, cries that are instructive for each of us when we are in a dark place in our faith. And here they are in this order. David cries out, God, guide me. In the darkness, guide me. Secondly, he says, God, be with me. In the darkness, be with me. And third, in the darkness, God, watch over me. God, guide me. God, be with me. And God, watch over me. Let's jump in. Look at me at verses 1 through 3. Here's where David begins his prayer, God, guide me. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. See, in the soul's dark night, the temptation for all of us is to run from God. And David, instead of running from God, draws near to him. You will notice in the English text, the word, the key verb here is lift up. He says, I lift up my soul to you. In the original language, this is a posture as well as an expression. A posture of trust, of transparency, of vulnerability. David is saying to us in the text, I am getting on my knees as a child and lifting my hands to God and reaching out to him. It is as if God is saying, or David is saying to God, I know you're loving, but it's really dark right now for me. And you have gone silent, and I'm mustering up all the trust I can in you right now. I'm going to keep waiting expectantly for you. Don't let me down. And In his prayer, David will begin and end with a reference to shame. Do not miss this. Psychologist Brene Brown, who is known very well for her TED Talks and so forth, puts it this way. She says, shame is the most powerful master emotion. 
It is the fear that we are simply not good enough. A great sense of shame often greets us in the dark night where we are not only haunted by God's seeming absence, but we are overwhelmed with our own brokenness and that we are fundamentally unlovable creatures. Yet in this psalm, you'll notice that David will repeatedly remind God and himself that God's love is loyal. It will not let him down. It will not let him go. Now notice, David's primary petition surprises us, doesn't it? Where he starts is surprising. Verse 4 all the way through verse 13 is an appeal for God to guide him. To guide him. After all, he is the shepherd king. He knows what shepherds do. And the good shepherd of anything, right, guides the flock. So he's saying, God is the good shepherd. You're not living up to your bargain here. And so he says, make me know your ways. Notice all the imperatives. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth. Eugene Peterson in the message brilliantly paraphrases verse 4. He says, show me, God, how you work. God, school me in your ways. And in verse 5, the psalmist again repeats this theme of waiting. You will notice he cries out to God, for you I wait all the day or all the days. This time, the Hebrew text translates this English word with an intense intensification. And the actual word of the Hebrew captures the sigh of the heart. Kava. Notice throughout this text the repeated affirmation of God guiding him. So why is it that David cries out first in his prayer for God's guidance? Why is that? It surprises us. My hunch is when we find ourselves in dark places, in the dark night, what comforts us most is someone to guide us in the darkness. Remember a time our family was on vacation. Maybe you did this, or maybe you've done this. It's a touristy thing to do. You're driving across the country, you know, and you see all these billboards for caves. Explore all these caves, and we fell for it. <laughs> touristy moment, the Nelsons, right? The Griswolds, whatever. So we stop in in this tourist place to explore this cave. You've probably been there. You get with all these strangers, you go to this dark place, you pay more money than you should, and you sit in this place. And if you're claustrophobic when the light's on, good grief when the lights go off. So the lights, right, you all wait for the time, the guy guides you down there, the lights go off, it gets totally black. Total darkness. It's seriously creepy. If you haven't done it, you haven't missed anything. You feel vulnerable. You feel fearful. You feel hauntingly alone. You feel like you cannot breathe. And the first thing you do, and I remember looking for Liz's hand, you grab for a loved one's hand. This is where David is. He's in a dark place, a dark cave. It's total darkness. At soul level, he is reaching out, saying, God, grab my hand. Guide me through this dark moment. Now, while God's guidance clearly has a mystical aspect to it, David's immediate context in the psalm is not merely a mystical encounter with God, but a revelatory word of Holy Scripture. We know this from the rest of the psalms. David looked to the guiding words of God, already spoken through Moses in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the primary means of his guidance. 
Psalm 119, he'll use this language, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You think David was in a dark place there? David's appeal to guidance is not necessarily a fresh word from God to him directly, but rather a fresh understanding of what God had already revealed in Holy Scripture. This is the emphasis of the imperatives. Let me say just a brief word since pastors are often asked, uh, as if we know all the answers, which we don't. Uh, how do you discern God's guidance in your life? It's one of the most common questions I'm asked as a pastor. So let me just say a couple words about that, okay? Wherever we find ourselves in our spiritual journey, let me just say the matter of seeking God's guidance is important and vital. The primary way, though, we discern God's guidance is through our prayerful study of Holy Scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Any mystical encounter or experience that reveals anything contrary to the clear teaching of Holy Scripture should be immediately discounted no matter who says it. Let me also say that if we are willfully disobedient to what the Scriptures clearly teach, we should never expect God's specific guidance in other areas of our life. This is really important as well as intimacy. Guidance and intimacy go together based on obedience and submission to Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 21, listen, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and what? Disclose myself to him. Intimacy and guidance are predicated on submission and obedience. A very good book in this area of God's guidance, I highly recommend, is Dallas Willard's Hearing God. So if you're looking for one particularly, that's the one I would recommend. Psalm 25 echoes the theme of guidance. God, guide me. God, guide me. God, guide me. But notice where it goes next. The cry of his prayer moves from God, guide me, to God, be with me. Look at verse 14. The psalmist says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, the distance of culture and language interfere with our understanding of what's going on here. So let me just unpack it just a bit. Here David emphasizes his longing for a renewed intimacy with God. The Hebrew word translated friendship brings with it the idea of an inner circle of one's closest friends, counselors, and confidants. So like in our cultural context, we use the word friend in many ways, don't we? More often as an acquaintance. Like, I friended someone on Facebook, or I invited 50 of my friends to a Christmas party, which is stressful. <laughs> not that you don't care for them, they matter. But they're not your BFF, right? They're not your best friend forever. They're not your closest friend. And this is what the text is teaching. David is appealing to God himself as his best friend, his bestie. David is saying here in verse 14, hey God, we are best friends. Best friends are there for each other, right? And by the way, notice the text, remember that covenant idea? You communicated to your people, your covenantal love is a love of binding loyalty. It's like, uh, like uh, death till you part in marriage. So where are you, God? Verse 15 and 16, David will say, notice, Lord, my eyes are still on you. You've been there before. You plucked me from the net in the past. Now my eyes will be on you again. But again, in the lines, God, where are you? 
So turn to me. Be with me. Be gracious to me in this dark night. I feel so terribly alone. Please be with me. Be my intimate companion. Be my friend. In this season of lights, isn't it true that the holidays can be a dark night where our sense of loss is increasingly heightened and the loneliness we often feel increasingly painful? older I get, the more empty chairs are at my Christmas table. People I have lost that I love. Broken relationships that seem unmendable. And those who are not with us anymore. Henry Nouwen, if you've read his writings, he's a brilliant writer. In the 20th century, he was no stranger to love's dark night. And he pens these words on the theme of Christmas. He writes, this is the great mystery of Christmas that continues to give us comfort and consolation. We are not alone on the journey. The God of love who gave us life sent us his only son to be with us at all times and in all places so that we never have to feel lost in our struggles but always can trust that he walks with us. Christmas is the renewed invitation not to be afraid and let him whose love is greater than our hearts and minds can comprehend be our companion. Perhaps this Christmas season you are struggling with soul-level darkness. You may be in that dark night. You may have experienced a great loss. You may be enslaved to some sin that's just ripping you up. A relationship that seems unredeemable, an addiction you're struggling with, or a feeling of shame. You may be feeling rather hopeless under your Sunday smile, fearful and lonely. And David reminds us to look to God and get on our knees before him. That's where David is. And will you get on your knees before God and lift up your soul and cry out to Emmanuel, God with you, Jesus, the one who is with you, come be with me, Jesus. Come be with me in this dark place of fear, of loneliness, of shame. Come be my light in my darkness, Lord. In David's dark night, prayer is not his last resort. Notice, it is the first step in the hopeful pathway forward through the dark night to the place of light. So David cries out first, God, guide me. It's dark. Guide me. God, be with me. It's dark. Be with me and notice where he goes. Lastly, he cries out to God, God, watch over me in the darkness. Watch over me. In that lonely, dark place where God feels absent, David's troubles are ever-present. There's a hint in the original text where David is exaggerating his melancholy heart and mind. In other words, molehills are becoming massive mountains. But David transparently expresses the deep troubles that are overwhelming his soul. Notice in verses 17 through 19, and he vocalizes to God both his internal struggles with sin and his external struggles with people. Can you relate to that? It's a double whammy. Both are overwhelming David's soul. A man after God's own heart. 
And David cries out to God with all he can muster to watch over him in verse 20. Look at the text. Oh, oh, God, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. David is saying, good shepherd, watch over me. Protect me from the depravity of my own heart, Lord, and other depraved hearts around me. I'm looking to you, Lord, to come through for me. Loving God, guide me. Loving God, be with me. Loving God, watch over me. Loving God, I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on me. Don't do it. When everything else is falling apart in my life, David says, it's your love. It's your love. Your love alone I'm clinging to. I've been fascinating, fascinated by hearing about the movie that is about to be released. It's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. It's collateral beauty. Will Smith plays a character who has faced intense loss in his life. And it's kind of a therapy. He writes letters not to people, but to things like time and love and death. The movie storyline has a dark night feel to it. But its message, even though painfully difficult, is this. Don't give up on love. It's amazing to me that inspired just by the movie trailer, people have already been posting their own letters written to time, death, and love. Here are a couple of them I saw on the website that moved me to the core. Dear love, I used to believe in you, but the pain is so much that all there is to believe in now is pain. I hope some innocent soul out there has a happier ending. Here's another one. It brought me to tears. Dear love, you weren't there when I needed you the most, and I was left alone. That's why I decided to give up on you. Each one of us was created to be loved. We were hardwired for it. Our hearts long for it. To be loved by God and others. And we know in our experience in this world that human love will let us down. And we become jaded and cynical, don't we? And our disappointing human love experience fuels our skepticism upward as we think God... I'm not sure your love is any different. Will you really follow through? Will you be there for me? Now notice, as David's prayer comes to the end, we find in verse 21, David's bottom line of tenacious trust in God. David points out to God, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way of appealing him to his integrity and uprightness. He's saying, even in this dark place, Lord, where I am right now, where I can't see anything, where everything has gone black, I'm not going off the deep end of rebellion or disobedience. I'm going to stay obedient to you. I will not throw in the towel. I'm going to keep waiting for you. But it's important to realize that David does not end his prayer in verse 21. In verse 22, David moves beyond his own dark night of waiting and prays, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. What is David doing? It seems out of place. 
David knew something important. And he leaves us with this thought. Loving God and waiting on God go hand in hand. He also knew that while true love waits, it doesn't wait alone. We wait together. This is why Psalm 25 moves from being an individual lament for 21 verses and becomes a communal lament in one verse at the very end as we are invited into the corporate worship waiting room together. Waiting rooms are not something we like, are they? They're a part of life. Some of the most difficult places for me in my life have been in waiting rooms of hospitals. And maybe you've been there too. Maybe recently. A loved one has been in an accident, struggling with a life-threatening disease, facing a risky surgery or clinging to life. And what I've noticed is that hospital waiting rooms are always lit really well, but they are the darkest places I've ever experienced of sadness, fear, and loneliness. In those waiting rooms, minds race. Hearts ache. Time grinds to a virtual halt. What is more comforting and encouraging in those moments than a close friend or family member who comes and simply waits next to you? In a waiting room, no one here ever wants to be completely alone. See, love waits, but it doesn't wait alone well. In God's waiting room, we wait together in corporate worship. That's the thrust of this whole prayer. When you find yourself in a dark night of the soul, there's nothing you and I need more than corporate worship. When we feel the lowest, we all too often avoid what we need the most. And when we gather for corporate worship, we are not only encouraged and comforted, we position ourselves to hear God's voice speak to us. What I have discovered and many in this room have discovered is often in corporate worship through the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, the singing of songs, the praying of prayers, the gathering around the holy communion table of our Lord Jesus when God breaks his apparent silence in our dark. Waiting together, we often hear together God's voice. But sometimes we find simply the renewed strength to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. In the darkest of nights, King David was willing to wait. Why? Why? Because David was not waiting for something, he was waiting for someone. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that a future king would come, the Messiah, would establish an eternal kingdom on earth. He would be the light of the world. He'd forever push back the darkness of sadness and sin and the dark nights and bring salvation and restoration to a broken world. David waited and waited and waited. God's covenant people waited and waited. Between the Old and New Testament, for 400 years, God went silent. And they waited. And then against the dark night of a Bethlehem sky, the light of the world was born. In love's dark night, God himself became human flesh. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, burst on the scene of a broken, sin-stained planet. Psalm 25 tells us that God's love will not only be there for you in trouble, God's love will make you wait. 
So the question is, is God's love really worth waiting for? Is the wait worth it? The Advent season answers this heart cry with an exuberant, all caps, yes! God's love is worth the wait, even in love's dark night. The words of the psalmist on his lips, why have you forsaken me, God? Jesus on the cross faced the darkest of nights. With your sin and my sin and the sin of the world on his bloodied shoulders, Jesus entrusted himself to the heavenly father as his heavenly father for a hideous moment turned his back on his son, the sin-bearing lamb, so that you and I might be forgiven and given new life. The good news of the gospel is the light of the world has come into the darkest place and he can come into the darkness of your heart and mine this Advent season. If you've never responded to Christ, if you've never repented of your sin and placed your complete trust in Jesus, in his atoning death and death-defying resurrection, will you do that in the quietness of your heart this morning? It's nothing you can earn. It's a gift you receive by faith. A bloody cross and an empty tomb. Declare that God's love may make you wait. God's love will ultimately never disappoint you. God's love is worth the wait. I was driving in my car this week and uh, with a few snowflakes on my windshield and a gray sky, it was beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And on my radio came an old familiar friend with a familiar tune, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I have to say a kind of warm nostalgia overflowed in me. And I find myself doing something scary. I know, I was all alone. I started singing this tune. Horrendously, I'm sure. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a little merry Christmas. Make the yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. As I listened to those words and hummed them and tried to sing them, it was like old familiar friends were with me in the car. But I was struck in a new way how they woo my longing heart to a love that will fail me in the end. The thoughts of a happy reconciliation just in time for Christmas or the lonely who are surrounded always by harmonious, happy families and the lost who will always make it home. This is not the real present world I live in. It is a world of dark nights. Christmas comes and goes, doesn't it? And each time it disappoints the deepest longings of your heart and mind. Isn't it ironic that just when we long to be the happiest, we are often the saddest. But when we look to the hopeful truth of Christmas, we see that this life is not only the one shot we have at satisfying love and happiness. Like King David and God's covenant people of old, we too wait. We wait. 
for God to redeem us from all our troubles, to truly make the world right. We now wait not for Messiah Jesus' first coming, but his second coming, and he will return not as a helpless boy, a baby, but a conquering king. How we long in the depths of our bones for the new heavens and new earth, where the dark nights of loneliness, of fear, shame and sadness and death will be no more. So this Advent, may we look to Jesus, his future second coming and the new life and world he will bring where we will never feel alone and we will find happiness and pleasures forever. In this season of lights where many longing hearts this morning are facing some very dark places, we are not alone, nor do we wait alone. We wait together. We cry out together, come Lord Jesus, come. Come be our light. Because true love inevitably waits, but it's always worth the wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us in such extraordinary ways. But most of all, for being Emmanuel who came to this earth who became human flesh yet without sin and who became sin for us that we might be the very creation you created us to be in Christ. So Lord, may the love of Jesus fill each and every heart as we continue to adore you.